while the birth of, of Jesus has been observed and celebrated for the last 2,000 years, and why it, while it continues to be observed and celebrated by much of the world today, I think it's fair to say that, that if pressed, most people today, not, not, I wouldn't say probably most people in this room, but most people today in our, in our culture and our world look at the accounts surrounding the birth of Christ like they would a myth or a fable, and, and that they contain truth, but, um, but the miracle of the incarnation, the virgin birth, and the, and the, the events surrounding it, um, most people might say that it didn't really happen the way that it's recorded for us in, in the scriptures. Again, I wouldn't say that's the way most of us would see that, but I think that's a fair observation for people in the world. And, and it's, it's a challenge and it's a question that, that we get asked by people. For example, over the centuries, it's been, over the last couple of centuries, it's, uh, uh, the last couple of, uh, yeah, I, I think centuries, certainly um, decades, it has been argued by those who are, would consider themselves modern um, critical theologians, modern, modern critical scholars, that the idea of ancient pagan philosophers, of, of ancient pagan astrologers traveling from afar, traveling from the east, um, coming and looking for a Jewish Messiah, they would, they would argue, well, that's preposterous. Um, that's it, it, more like a fairy tale than, than reality. Um, and what makes it so sad is that people too often and too easily accept for themselves what it is that the quote-unquote scholars tell us. And what makes it especially sad is in, in this case, in the, in the case of our passage today, is, is, is that, that it undermines our confidence in the scriptures. And, and, and we know that, especially in, with this passage, Matthew records this passage. Um, what he records here is not at all preposterous. It, it is quite reasonable. For example, we know that, that the, many of the intellectuals, many of the social elite in and around the first century were really into astrology. It was a big deal in the first century. We know that, that many of the intellectuals, many of the intellectual elite in the first century, they believed that the birth and the death of great kings was, was, was accompanied by signs in the sky. Here's something else we know from Josephus and other ancient historians is that in that same time period, there were strong rumors circulating throughout the Mediterranean that soon there would be a significant and influential ruler who would come out of Judea. And that's perfectly reasonable because of all the Jewish exiles who were living in and who were spread out throughout the Roman Empire who had built for themselves Jewish synagogues. And in those Jewish synagogues, they would have had copies of the Old Testament prophets. As collectors of wisdom from around the world, the Magi, they would have certainly been somewhat familiar with, with the history of Israel. They would have been familiar with the hopes and the expectations of the Jewish people. They would have been familiar with the records of the Old Testament prophets repeatedly speaking of this future Messiah. Now here's something else we know. In and around the first century, 
in around the time of the birth of Jesus, there was some sort of astrological alignment between Jupiter and Saturn. And the astrologers went crazy over it. Therefore, the idea that a group of wise men, a group of magi, would have traveled from afar, would have come from the east, looking for a newborn king, is not at all unreasonable. It's just not. And there is no reason for us to doubt the historicity, the historical integrity of what Matthew has recorded for us in today's passage. But if we look closely at this text, we look closely at the details of this story, we look closely at what Matthew records for us, at what he includes in the story as well as what he doesn't include, if we look at what Matthew tells us as well as he, what he doesn't tell us, it becomes more clear that he is drawing out theological truth about Jesus that is embedded, that is rooted in, in, in historical reality. All right? So with that in mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us as we enter into this passage. All right? Heavenly Father, um, the passage that Luke read for us earlier tells us about the, these, these magi, these, these strange figures who come to worship Jesus in, in this little town of Bethlehem. Lord, I pray that you would show us today what it is we're supposed to learn, what we're supposed to know, what it is you want us to know, and what it is you want us to do, what you want us to know about you and, and how we should respond. And I pray this would be clear, and I ask this in the name of this child, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, the, the passage that, that Luke read for us today is not just the Advent reading, but it, it is the, the sermon text for today. And there we have these magi who have traveled from afar. They've come to find Jesus. They, they come to Jerusalem. Um, Herod calls all the religious leaders together. They, they find this prophecy um, from Micah, the, the prophet Micah. The, the, and, and they all kind of knew that Jesus was supposed to, the, the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they tell him Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem and they, they somehow they find Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus and and they kneel down and they worship him. Um, throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries, there has been all kinds of speculation and all kinds of claims about who these magi were. They're, they're sometimes, and, and, and we may be singing the song next week, they're sometimes referred to as kings. And pretty much that comes from the, the hymn what? We three kings. I think, I think it's on the schedule to sing next week. We, and here's the thing. After I get done bashing, I don't know, man, Linda will take it out. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really going to bash the hymn. But, but that hymn was written by somebody who doesn't know their Greek. Because they were not kings. They were magi. It, it, the, the, the Greek word is magos. It's where we get the word magician. Now, it wasn't necessarily the same. It's, they, they, they weren't talking about people who do sleight of hand, illusions, and what have you. But the magi of the, of the first century were philosophers. They were collectors of wisdom. They were astrologers. They were interpreters of dreams. And, and, and so they were magi. They weren't kings. Now, some people have become so obsessed about the tradition of these, of these, of these magi that they've actually given them names. Gaspar, Balthazar, and, and Malquire. 
But the truth is, we don't know their names. In fact, we don't even know that there were three of them. All we know is that there was three gifts. The reality is there could have been a dozen or more of, of these magi who traveled to see this, this baby. The fact is, we really don't know much about the magi. We just don't. But, but, but here's something we do know with absolute certainty. We know that with absolute certainty, that a part, that, that, that regardless of what's depicted in the nativity, we know that they were not there the night Jesus was born with the shepherds. Right? We know that, that they didn't come. By the time they got there, Jesus was cutting teeth and learning to walk. All right? So, we just don't know much about them. And while we're talking about things we don't know, <laughs> let's talk a little for a moment about the star that we're told rose, uh, the, the, the star that arose and went before them. I mean, how did it go before them? How did it stand over the place where Jesus was? Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Was it some sort of, of divinely manipulated light? You know, I, I offer, was it as I suggested a minute ago? Was it the alignment, an astrological alignment between planets? You know, I only offered that as, as a possibility to show you that there are sometimes reasonable explanations, um, reasonable reasons to believe Matthew's account. But the fact is, I don't know that for sure. I don't know that's what it was. You see, like with the Magi, there have been numerous attempts over the centuries to try to explain um, what this star was, but the fact is we don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. So we got to be careful not to get caught up in these theories that really are, are only tentative and really don't offer a whole lot of spiritual significance or insight for us, all right? Just, it, it's important we shouldn't get caught up on the nature of this star. What I want you to see is there is a reason that Matthew doesn't tell us how many magi there were or what countries they came from. There's a reason why he doesn't explain to us the astrological nature of this star. There's a reason why he doesn't tell us how they made the connection between the star and the birth of Jesus. He doesn't tell us that either. And there's a reason for that. It's because none of these things are relevant to what it is that Matthew wants us to see in this text. It's just not relevant. Now, if you go back... And read for yourself, you'll see that, that what I said a moment ago is true. The Gospels are carefully crafted. In fact, I would say they are inspired in order to communicate to us important theological truths about Jesus. But those truths find themselves rooted in a historical reality. Right? For example, take Luke's Gospel for an example. If you read Luke's gospel, you will see that, that Luke tells his readers that God influenced the entire Roman Empire. That God used a census in order to get a virgin to Bethlehem. You'll see that God used a census in order to fulfill an ancient prophecy regarding her delivery, regarding the birth of her son, this newborn king. So, so Luke tells us that God manipulated the Roman government. Matthew, on the other hand, tells us, Matthew tells us that, that in the passage we just read a moment ago, that God exercised his global and influential influence over, uh, over creation in order to get a group of pagan philosophers to Bethlehem. 
tells us, so, so that they could see for themselves this same child, this newborn king, the one who was born to Mary. And for Matthew, the lesson is quite plain. God wields his power over the universe as a way to fulfill prophecy, as a way to guide foreigners to Jesus. He, uses his, he wields his power over the universe in order to gather the nations to worship his son. And, and, and so that they may get there and they may kneel down before him. You know, we saw last week, Matthew's already made it clear that Jesus is a descendant of David. He's made it clear that, that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, that Jesus is a king. But in today's passage, what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is more than just a king. He, he wants us to see that Jesus is the son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he is God incarnate. And again, I'm going to say this again, the reason Matthew doesn't tell us who the Magi are or where they came from or how many there were, the reason he doesn't explain to us the exact nature of this star is so that the full impact, the full emphasis may be placed on the one thing that matters the most. And that is that the Magi, these pagan Gentiles, came from the east, they traveled from afar in order to see Jesus. And when they found him, they fell to the ground and they worshiped him that's what Matthew wants us to see more than anything that's Matthew's primary intention for this passage and here's something else that is helpful to understand that, that drives this point even further that that is you got to understand the intended audience the primary audience that Matthew was writing for the primary audience that Matthew intended his readers to be was a Jewish audience. It was Jewish people. That's his primary audience. And you got to ask yourself, what was it that set Jewish people apart from all the other nations that surrounded them? It was monotheism. It was the belief in and the worship of one God. It was belief in and the worship of one true God. You know, one of the oldest and fixed daily prayers in Judaism is called the Shema. You may know what it is. Just raise your hand if you know what it is. Okay, about six, seven of you do. Now, the Shema was to be recited by Jewish people, and it, it still is recited by, by many Jewish people even today. It was supposed to be recited both morning and, and night. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Say it with me if you know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Jewish people were supposed to recite that morning and night. You see, everybody knew that the most basic principle of Hebrew theology was that they were not to worship, they were not to bow down to anyone or anything other than the one true God. So when Matthew tells his readers, which is a Jewish audience, that these magi, these pagan Gentiles, traveled from afar in order to see this newborn king, and when they got there, when they found him, that they fell down to the ground and they, they worshipped him, when Matthew excludes all other details and focuses on this 
alone, he is telling his readers, he's telling us that everyone else must do the same. He's telling us that Jesus is more than just a king. He's telling us that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is God incarnate. And he deserves to be worshipped, not just by Jews, but by the world. You know, if, if you read Matthew's gospel in its entirety, you're going to see that it begins here with foreigners from the east coming to worship Jesus. And you're going to see that it ends with Jesus telling his disciples in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All right? You're going to see that both at the beginning and at the end, it portrays Jesus as a universal Messiah. Not just for the Jews, but for all nations. You're going to see that he is a Christ. He is a Messiah. He is the Savior of the world, of everyone. And be assured, Matthew is not being even in the least bit theologically creative in this. He is simply stating what the Old Testament prophets had already made known. That there is one day going to be, a, there is going to be one day, a, a day in which all the world, in which all the nations will know the glory of the living God through the messianic king. Now that doesn't mean that every man and every woman and every child will be saved, but rather it means that anyone and everyone from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people, from every nation, from every corner of the world who rests and trusts in him for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospels will be saved. Amen? I didn't get an amen out of that, Bob. I'm going to shock you at how short this sermon is today. You know, before we come to this table together, I want us to think about something pretty incredible for a minute. This room is filled almost exclusively with Gentile Christians. I'm not aware that anybody here is of Jewish descent. I'm sure, probably statistically, I'm sure somebody is. Most of our ancestors were running around other parts of the world when these magi came to Bethlehem. So what we are seeing right here, what we're seeing in this very room is also a manifestation. It is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And what began in the passage that, we, that Luke just read for us at the beginning of the service... What began with a group of pagan astrologers, of Gentile philosophers, kneeling and bowing down before baby Jesus, is finding its fulfillment in us at this very moment in this very room. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to the table, we're reminded through the Apostles' Creed that Rob read, we're reminded through the worship, we're reminded through the sermon, through the scriptures, that we are united to something much bigger than ourselves. That we are the products of an eternal plan that you have instituted. That we're united to these these magi, these strange figures who came from afar to, to bow down and worship you. May we be encouraged by the beauty of that. And may you receive glory and honor and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.